You're listening to TIP. Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. We have a very special and unique episode this week. We're changing up the format for this one. Typically, I invite a guest on the show, as you know, and interview them about topics related to The Good Life. And since we are embarking on a new year, I thought it would be beneficial to pause and reflect on what we've learned in the past year from the guests that we've had on the show and the topics that we've covered. And there's a couple reasons for this. First of all, we launched the show in January of 2020. So we're celebrating the first year of the Good Life podcast. And I thought it would be a nice way to acknowledge this milestone. Secondly, the audience has grown tremendously since we launched. So many of you who may have joined in the summer or the fall might not be aware of the episodes and the guests from earlier in the year. So this may alert you to a topic of interest for you, and it might motivate you to go back and listen to an earlier episode because I think there's so many great topics and guests we've had on so far. Third, one of the recurring themes I heard from guests this year, as they shared with us their thoughts on how to live the good life, is this idea of taking time for reflection. Whether it's writing in a journal or going for a walk, Whatever it is that you like to do, it's beneficial to set aside time periodically to revisit our recent experiences and conversations and reading and just reflect on the lessons we can draw from them so they can really sink in and we can apply them to our lives for impact. So for all these reasons, I thought a brief retrospective of the ground we covered in 2020 would be helpful. So here we go. You're listening to The Good Life by the Investors Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and values that help you live a meaningful, purposeful life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well-lived. My very first guest on The Good Life was Brian Portnoy author of The Geometry of Wealth, and he addressed the topic of money and happiness. So I'm going to play you a clip from that interview where he talks about this idea of hedonic adaptation, which is a very important concept when it comes to achieving happiness and searching for the good life. It's a mental model that comes up again and again throughout the year in different episodes. And so I'm glad it came up right at the beginning, the very first episode. So here's Brian Portnoy talking about hedonic adaptation. In social psychology, there's this notion of hedonic adaptation and the hedonic treadmill. The idea with hedonic adaptation is that human beings tend to flex to their environment in both good and bad circumstances. We kind of get used to most things. And that's a really nice feature for people to have. So we, we like to be in balance. Homeostasis is sort of our, our neutral point because being permanently ecstatic or permanently depressed are pretty unstable, exhausting states of being. So we like to be somewhere in the middle. A consequence of that is that when we encounter some sort of event, you can talk about it in terms of goals, so achieving a goal, which I think we would see as, as a positive thing. Once we achieve that goal, what, what I think we all know it intuitively, but it's certainly been reinforced through research, is that when you know your kid gets into the college of her choice, or you get that promotion at work, or you win the lottery, whatever the good thing that happened is, well, both the intensity and the duration of the happiness that you feel in response to that is relatively muted and short-lived. 
humans are pretty bad at predicting the future, but they're even worse at predicting the intensity and duration of their emotional state in response to something that happens in the future. And the same thing works on the negative side, which I think we think is a good thing. Illness, injury, losing your job, getting divorced, like humans actually do a pretty good job at responding in terms of adapting to those things. Because again, like being very depressed is not a very stable, good place to be. And, and we kind of we snap out of it. As a result, we become used to everything, not everything, but there, there are many things we can accommodate in our daily lives. And so we're on this treadmill in the sense that we're working toward goals, our families are working toward goals, and we're just sort of chasing things that once we get them, well, we want more. You know, great line, which I'll bungle a little bit from um, Mad Men is when, you know, the main character, Don Draper, is asked, well, what is happiness? He, he says, happiness is that feeling that you have until you want more happiness. He is a pretty depressing character, but also speaks some truth. And I think that's something that we can be more conscious of and take into account, not only from the process of financial planning, but more broadly in life planning. So this idea of the hedonic treadmill and hedonic adaptation is so powerful. It's a powerful mental model to understand if we want to live the good life. It's important to know how our human psychology works so we can avoid the traps and pitfalls of thinking that material wealth or the pursuit of fame is somehow going to solve all of our problems in our life and make everything okay. We're going to have to go beyond money and go deeper to understand how to live the good life. And one person who can help us do that is the philosopher and economist Adam Smith. So I invited Ryan Hanley on the show to discuss his book, Our Great Purpose, Adam Smith on Living a Better Life. Hanley's book was one of the best books I read in 2020. It distills Adam Smith's wisdom down into very clear, simple prose, and he brings Smith's ideas to light and makes them relevant to a modern reader. In the episode with Ryan, he talks about a passage from Adam Smith where Smith says, there are two paths we can take in life. So I'm going to drop you into that discussion. Yeah, I have to say, I love all of these quotes from Smith. I wouldn't have chosen them if I didn't. And there's so many others I would have liked to cram into a much longer book and have crammed into longer books. But I think this is one that really speaks to us and sort of lays out the options. And he says, quote, to deserve, to acquire, and to enjoy the respect and admiration of mankind are the great objects of ambition and emulation. Two different roads are presented to us, equally leading to the attainment of this so much desired object. The one by the study of wisdom and the practice of virtue, the other by the acquisition of wealth and greatness. Smith is putting forth this idea. There's two ways to go, two lives to live. And indeed, we should have the Frost poem in mind about the rose diverging in the snowy wood. This idea that there's what the world admires, and then there's this other life that some people have chosen to lead. Wealth and greatness are the familiar rewards for living in ways that the world approves of. And then there's this other weird thing, this life of the quote-unquote study of wisdom and the practice of virtue. And Smith is pretty clear that that might not get as much attention, reward, remuneration, approbation. That life of wisdom and virtue, it's going to fall somewhat short of what the world values. But Smith really does seem to think that that life lived in a very particular way, a life of wisdom and virtue, is one that has great potentiality for both 
not just personal and individual happiness, but also for genuinely contributing to the well-being and happiness of those around us. So there's something really special in this life of wisdom and virtue that is both good for ourselves and good for others. And even more interestingly, to go back to your earlier point, it was that life that he thought Hume, his good friend Hume, embodied as well as anybody ever has. So Smith is advocating for this life of wisdom and virtue. And I absolutely love this idea of following the path of wisdom and virtue. It's a simple idea. It's enticing. But as we know, it's very difficult to do in practice. It takes a lot of intention, a lot of discipline and focus. So how do we develop, say, something like wisdom? One way is to get acquainted with the greatest thinkers and writers of the past, people like Adam Smith and the ancient Greeks and other philosophers and novelists who have thought and written deeply about life and the human journey. To help nudge us down the path of wisdom and virtue, I invited Elizabeth Samet on the show. Samet is a professor of English at the United States Military Academy at West Point and author of the anthology Leadership, Essential Writings by Our Greatest Thinkers. In this passage I'm going to play for us, she is talking about and introducing us to the writer and philosopher Seneca, the Roman writer. And I asked her to discuss a letter Seneca wrote to a friend where he offers the advice that what we really need, what we're really searching for in life is this inner tranquility and inner peace. So here's Elizabeth in episode five. Well, I love this one because because it does feel very, in a weird way, very contemporary. He chooses this place to live and and work where it's the noisiest possible place. And he details all the things that are going on. I mean, he's, he's, he, it's near a gym. And so he's got all these people making all these noises and shouts. And there's a pool there and they're leaping into the pool. And he chooses this place. And he, in order to refine his concentration and block things out, um, he says that he's hardened himself against all these disturbances. He is forcing himself to focus on his mind and not be distracted by outside events. And his point is that this sort of search we have for tranquility, we think that if we lock ourselves in a silent room, we'll gain some kind of concentration. But his point is you need a kind of inner tranquility and you can set up all the conditions of silence you want. But if you are turbulent and restless and distracted inside, you will continue to be that way. And so he's using this to sort of think about the ways in which we might best achieve a self-knowledge and a a self-awareness that helps us to sort of direct ourselves. And then my favorite part of the essay is that at the end, he says, after all this, and after he says it's not outside, but inside peace, he said, but I'm also really tired of living where I am. So it was an experiment and I think I'm going to move. So that was Elizabeth Samet talking about Seneca, who's giving us the advice that we need to find inner tranquility. And it does beg the question, well, how, how do we get that? How do we attain that peace or that tranquility? And the answer, at least for some people, is stoicism. And this is certainly the answer provided by William Irvine, who came on the show to talk about his book, A Guide to the Good Life. And Irvine is a practicing stoic. And in this section of the interview, I ask Irvine why it's important to have a philosophy of life and what that really means. And in his answer, Irvine summarizes a number of themes from earlier guests. He mentions hedonic adaptation. He mentions the idea of avoiding the path of pursuing fame and fortune that Smith alluded to. And he eventually gets to this goal of seeking tranquility that Seneca was talking about. So here's William Irvine from episode six. 
Yeah, it's amazing because we have a life to live and we live it every single day. And then the question is, what are we trying to accomplish with our days? So what most people do is they don't give it a lot of serious thought. They just look around and they see what other people have as goals. And they assume that somebody somewhere has done their homework and figured out what's really worth having. And so they just follow the herd. And what the herd uh, is interested in, and this is to put it in the most stark terms possible, the herd is interested primarily in two things, and that is fame and fortune. And fame can mean, you know, fame with a capital F, but it just means social acceptance, means having other people admire you. Even better, and more darkly, it means having other people envy you. And then the fortune part, that's just the acquisition of sufficient wealth that you can live, you know, materially good life. But I suspect that there's a double motive there, and it's also partly so you can experience the envy of other people who wish they could be living the life you're living. In the research on human desire, you know, I very quickly realized what many, many wise people before me have already figured out, and that is to pursue the goal of fame and fortune is a self-defeating goal. So here's how human desire works. You find yourself wanting something, and then you convince yourself that if only you had the thing you want, then you would be happy, happy forevermore. But then the problem is that once you get it, you just find something new to want. And so it's a, it's a never-ending pursuit. You adjust to whatever you have, want something new, you get it. And once again, you adjust and want something new. So it's a recipe for a life of dissatisfaction. And what philosophies of life in their most enlightened form have figured out, that's not the answer. There's another answer. There's another thing, another goal we should be pursuing. And both the Stoics and Zen Buddhists agreed on the goal. This surprised me that they would because they seemed so different. But the goal they agreed on was tranquility. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that because, you know, when you say tranquility, what many people will assume that I mean is just this a blissed out state, drug-like state where you are uh, just tuning out everything and aren't really are a very laid back sort of individual. But tranquility instead, for the Stoics at least, tranquility meant the absence in your life of negative emotions, a negative emotion such as fear anxiety, hatred, envy would be a, another negative emotion. The positive emotions were fine, but the negative emotions are the ones that disrupt our tranquility. And before I go any further, just to make clear on this, this is what the Roman Stoics said. The Greek Stoics were much bigger on discussions of virtue as a goal, and they have a specific characterization of virtue but when you read the, the Roman Stoics, and these are, are the names you'll normally associate with Stoicism, people like Marcus Aurelius, people like Seneca, people like Epictetus, they had the word that keeps popping up is tranquility. That was their goal. And uh, I agreed with them. It's an admirable goal. But, you know, if that's all the goal was, then, hey, toss-up, which do you do? Zen Buddhism? Oh, by the way, the Epicureans also are misunderstood. They weren't simply party people. They were also pursuing tranquility. So were the skeptics of, of the ancient world were pursuing tranquility. And then it becomes an, an interesting second question, and that is they all have different formulas, different strategies for reaching that tranquility. 
And it becomes a practical issue then, which of those, which of those strategies is more likely to get you to the goal? And I finally decided that for me at least, the stoic strategies would be easiest to use and most likely to deliver the goods. So that was William Irvine talking about tranquility, the search for tranquility and peace, and how so many different religions and philosophies have as their core goal to help move people towards tranquility, and how he chose stoicism as the philosophy that he felt he was best suited for. In following with this vein of stoicism, I invited Donald Robertson on the show for episode eight to discuss his new book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. Robertson is a master at explaining stoicism, and one of the lessons he talks about in his episode is this technique that Stoics use to reduce anxiety, to help them find tranquility. It's this idea of controlling what we can control. So here's Robertson talking about Epictetus and his famous handbook. I have this book called the Encharidion, or the Handbook of Epictetus, one of the most famous Stoic teachers. And it's a summary of his teachings, you know, really only about 20 pages long or so. And the opening sentence of it is, some things are up to us and other things are not. And the remarkable thing about that is that, you know, many people might read that and think, isn't that just stating the obvious? Isn't it just like a truism to say that some things are up to us and under our control and, and other things aren't? But the Stoics were smart enough to realize that even though in a sense that's self-evidently true, we seem to have this tendency to keep forgetting about it and getting confused about it. And that explains a lot of our frustration and a lot of our psychological problems in life, right down to the level of in, in modern psychotherapy, when I specialized in, in treating anxiety disorders. And, you know, when people are anxious, they often fail to distinguish between aspects of their anxiety that are under voluntary control and aspects that aren't. So, for instance, Someone who's anxious, their heart might be beating fast and they may try to slow their heart rate down by changing their breathing or trying to make themselves relax. And they often get more frustrated because they're kind of struggling against something that's involuntary. It's a reflex-like physiological response. And the more they focus on it and struggle against it, the worse it often becomes. When in fact, there might be other aspects of their anxiety that are more directly under voluntary control. They're neglecting such as whether they avoid certain situations or choose to expose themselves to them, or the amount of time that they spend worrying or ruminating about a subject. So people often say that their worrying is out of control, but actually the research that we have in this area suggests that people have more voluntary control over the duration of worry than they normally assume. So they're trying to exert control over things that are involuntary, and they're neglecting to control things that are actually potentially up to them. And so the Stoics were right on the money there in terms of this being central to a lot of the psychological problems that people have today. So that was Donald Robertson talking about Stoicism and managing our anxiety by focusing on what we can control and what we can't control. Another way people pursue tranquility and peace of mind is by seeking solitude, carving out some alone time. And in episode 10, I invited Michael Irwin author of Leadership and Solitude, to talk to us about this. And I asked him what he meant by solitude. And I loved his answer because I realized that what I thought were experiences of solitude in my life were not actually, according to Irwin, I was going on a run all by myself or a walk or something like that through running trails in a beautiful wooded park near my home, listening to a podcast. And I thought that was solitude. 
Not so fast, says Irwin. Here is his answer in episode 10 when I asked him what exactly he meant by solitude. When you think about solitude, we often envision you know, someone off on their own out in the mountains or you know, far away from you know, a lot of people. And what we have done is define solitude really as a psychological state where the mind is isolated from the input from other minds. And so that means you can be in a coffee shop or you can be around other people. But if you are inside your own mind and you're journaling or you're writing or you're thinking, right, that is solitude. At the same time, you can be on top of Mount Rainier and there can be no other human being within you know, a couple of miles of you. But if you are ripping through your Instagram feed or you're you know, on your phone, right? that is not solitude, even though there's no other human being within a couple of miles of you. So it really is about the psychological space where the mind separates itself from all the noise and all the input from other sources and other minds. Well, when you define solitude like that, definitely brings up the challenge we have today with these phones in our pocket. I'm an avid listener of podcasts. So I often will throw a podcast in if I have a little time here or there. And so if I'm by myself, but yet I'm listening to a podcast, I'm sort of getting streamed ideas into my head. That's really not the kind of solitude you're talking about, right? Correct. And so that same sort of idea or concept would apply to reading a book. So obviously, like you, I listen to podcasts, I read books. And so where the solitude plays its role is when you hit pause on the podcast, when you hit pause on the book and you put it down and you spend three or four or five minutes thinking about what you just heard and thinking about the application of those ideas to your own life or to your own leadership life. So that's where you can get the best of both worlds, listen to the podcast, read the books, have the conversation with somebody. But then the question is, are you then putting in the time on the back end where you're distilling and analyzing those ideas and applying them to your own life? So that was Michael Irwin talking to us about solitude and the importance of finding time alone with our thoughts, putting the podcast down, putting the phone down and stop scrolling Twitter or Instagram or whatever it is, and just spending some time alone with our thoughts to think and reflect. And Irwin goes on to talk about the importance of cultivating that time if we are in a leadership role and how to use that time to clarify our purpose and articulate our vision. Another theme that came up again and again this past year is this idea of the importance of reading. Whenever we are considering reading, there's always this question or the decision, what to read next? And to help us answer that, I invited James Mustich on the podcast to discuss his book, 1,000 Books to Read Before You Die. And James was just one of my favorite guests last year and just a lot of fun. And this was episode 12. And I asked James, to read a quote, which he put in his book. And this quote was from Virginia Woolf about how do we decide what to read next? So I'm going to drop you in on that episode and he's going to read the quote and sort of reflect on it. I was very glad when I found it. And it's from an essay by Virginia Woolf that was titled, How Should One Read a Book? And I quote, the only advice that one person can give another about reading is to take no advice, to follow your own instincts. Use your own reason to come to your own conclusions. If this is agreed between us, then I feel at liberty to put forward a few ideas and suggestions, because you will not allow them to fetter that independence, which is the most important quality that a reader can possess. Close quote. To me, that speaks of what we were talking about before, of agency, of choosing your interests or the world you want to live in for a while, and that I looked at my task 
as giving people a landscape to wander around in so their attention could alight on something that was going to repay the hours they would put into the book. So it's not meant to be prescriptive. It's not meant to be read from cover to cover, or the goal shouldn't be to read all 1,000. Most important thing is the book you're going to read next, and I think my book can help you choose that. That was James Mustich from episode 10, talking about the most important book is the book you're going to read next. So powerful. I've been using James's book, 1,000 Books to Read Before You Die, by the way, to help me find my next book. And it's truly been an amazing resource for that purpose. It helped me find my way to reading War and Peace, which is just an amazing novel. And I invited Andrew Kaufman on the podcast, the author of Give War and Peace a Chance, to talk about that book. That episode aired last week, so I'm not including it in this retrospective, but it's a good example of just following Wolf's advice to take no advice and follow your instincts. So in continuing with this theme of reading to gain wisdom, in episode 14, I invited Scott Hambrick of Online Great Books on the show. Scott is just a wonderful character and a great storyteller, and he helps readers through his organization, Online Great Books, he helps readers work through the great books of Western civilization. And you can read each book with a reading cohort that meets regularly online to discuss and engage with the material. During the episode, I asked Scott if reading the great books would help us live the good life. Here was his response. When you say, I want to live a good life, there's a lot packed in there. What is life? What is good? Is that actually the purpose of a human being to live a good life? There's a lot assumed in there when you throw a question like that out. I think it's important to kind of dig in there and and figure out what you think all of those things are. Life, good, living, higher purposes, before you can even start to formulate a plan. And those early guys, particularly Plato and Aristotle, and then then maybe Aquinas, ask all the questions properly. And they give some darn good answers. You may not agree, but they set the, a really great example for answering those questions and how you might approach them. You know, Aristotle, uh, he talks about, you know, what's, if you're going to live a good life, like, what does that mean? Does that mean you just like eat a lot of great food? Did you buy a bunch of stuff? Did you have all the sex partners you want? Like, what does it really mean? Like, how do you do that? Is it about your sense experience? Is it about ease? What's it about? And he says it's about, we call it happiness, but, the Greeks called it eudaimonia. Those Greeks are like, you know, you hear these stories about how like Eskimos have like 500 words for snow because they had such a nuanced understanding of snow. They needed all that language resolution to actually talk about it like they needed to. Those Greeks are like that about love and, and happiness. You know, they get this, all these eros and agape. They have all these different kinds of love and they have different kinds of happiness that they talk about. We don't really have enough words for it. And they called it about eudaimonia. And that eudaimonic happiness is sort of a, a deep fulfillment. It's not really joyful. It's not laughing because somebody said a good joke. It's, it's, it's just this deep abiding fulfillment that, frankly, only humans can have. He outlines that and why that might be our highest purpose. And I think his, his main argument for why that would be our highest purpose is because you don't want happiness for any other reason. Like you might want to eat a good meal. Yeah, so you don't starve, so that you could continue life. Almost anything you do has another reason behind it. So that was Scott Hambrick from episode 14, talking about the good life and what we would learn or could learn by reading the great books. He's from the online great books, 
And he got into this idea of eudaimonia, the good spirit, which is the word the Greeks use for happiness or flourishing life. And that's really what we're after in this podcast. We want to look at life from different angles and to see how we can get to fulfillment. We're curious about different methods and habits and mental models that help us get there. And one of those tools or methods to living the good life is this idea of integrity and character. And on episode 15, I invited Christian Miller, author of The Character Gap, to join us on the show to talk about character. And I asked him the role it plays in the good life. Here is his answer. I think there are a number of reasons. We could start with just its impact on ourselves. So a character makes a big difference to our own individual lives. And this actually goes in a virtue and a vice direction. So there's good empirical evidence to support the idea that the better character you have, the better your life will go. So these are studies that have been done, which correlates measures of good character, like hope and conscientiousness and honesty with things that benefit us, like being in a better mood, being healthier, achieving more in life, having greater life satisfaction, and more purpose and value. One reason to answer your question is just that it actually seems to make our life go better if we have good character. And on the flip side, if we have a bad character, it makes our life go worse. Now, I wouldn't want to stop there, though, because that makes it sound like it's all about me. It's all self-interest. It's all egocentric. There are other reasons to care about character too, beyond just that one. But I think that's an important one. We shouldn't neglect it. Another reason is if you're a religious person, all the major world religions care about character. They think it's important. We go run the gamut from Judaism, Christian Islam, to Eastern religions like Confucianism and Hinduism. They say it's important to cultivate a good character, become a good person. Some religions would say, because God designed you that way, you have a good character, the person you should become. There's a second reason. I'll give you two more quickly. Uh, Third reason is that it's good for society. So if we have a good character, that actually benefits other people around us and the world we live in. So compare a society where the citizens of the society are just, and especially the leaders of the society are just when they're organizing the society, compare that to a society where the virtue of justice is not widespread. And we can see the difference in what those societies would look like. So that was Christian Miller talking about character and the role it plays in the good life. A few episodes later, episode 23, my guest was Jonathan Clements, the author of How to Think About Money. And I asked him about the role that money plays in happiness and living the good life. And here was his answer. So when I talk about money and happiness, I argue that money can essentially do three things for us. And one of the things it can do for us is it can help us not to worry about money so much. If we don't worry about money so much, we will be happier. As I say to people, money is sort of like health. It's only when you're sick that you realize how good it is to feel healthy. Similarly, it's only when you're broke that you realize how good it is to be in sound financial shape. So if you're smart about money, if you have money, you'll worry less about money. So that's one of the three major benefits of having money. You simply don't have to worry about the stuff. And that's a huge plus. Unfortunately for many Americans, they never get there. There's this basic trade-off that we can all make where we could decide, all right, should I spend a little bit less today so I have some money for tomorrow, or should I just go and blow the whole wad right away? And many Americans spend their entire lives spending everything that they have right away. 
And as a consequence, they never get that sense of serenity that comes from something as simple as having a few thousand dollars in the bank. There's uh, surveys of financial well-being, and what they find is the people who have $250 or less in the bank are at the bottom in terms of their sense of financial well-being. But if you get that bank account up to $5,000, suddenly you're extremely high in terms of the sense of financial well-being. So if we can just get people to spend a little bit less today and put it away for the future, we could measurably increase people's sense of financial happiness. We sort of know that just thinking about what's happened in recent months with the coronavirus and this economic dislocation, many people have been put into a financial panic because they simply weren't financially prepared for the dislocation that we've seen. And if these folks had just put away a little bit of money for the future, they would have got through the past few months in much better mental shape. That was Jonathan Clements. He's one of the most articulate voices out there talking about finance, and I really enjoyed his episode. So this retrospective brings us up to about June of 2020. I didn't want this episode to get too long, so I decided this was a good place to take a break. But let me know what you think about this exercise. Was it valuable to go back and review some of the best ideas and stories from 2020? Was it helpful? I really enjoyed it. I found it quite interesting. And I think these ideas are going to sink in a little bit better because I've gone back and and reviewed them. But I want to hear what you think. You can email me at seanm at realtimeperformance.com. That's S-E-A-N-M at realtimeperformance.com. That's my work email. You can read my blog at www.realtimeperformance.com. I also have a monthly newsletter, which you can sign up for at that website. You can also find me on Twitter at seanpmurray111. That's Sean P. Murray, 111. Feel free to DM me or reach out to me on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening to this podcast and being a part of this community. I hope you're enjoying the journey and I want to pledge to you that we're just getting started. I plan on bringing in more thoughtful and entertaining guests in 2021 to continue our search for the good life. I'll see you next Monday. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.